You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 7. We're going to look at Hebrews 7, 11 through 19 this morning. Hebrews 7, 11 through 19. A couple of weeks ago, our family went and visited the Ingalls homestead in DeSmet. Amy's been reading the books to the girls over the last few years, and we wanted to go and see one of the places Laura Ingalls Wilder grew up. And so uh, we made the day trip. And uh, they have a number of historical exhibits there as well that go beyond Laura Ingalls Wilder. And uh, one of the things they have there is an example of the type of structure you would have had to build immediately if you were pursuing uh, the Homestead Act. You got into a piece of land, you'd have to come up with shelter relatively quickly that would uh, probably last for at least uh, the first couple years. And so basically there's two options. You had the shanty or you had the dugout. Shanty is basically a shed and the dugout, you'd have to find a hill, you'd have to uh, scoop out dirt, and uh, and then instead of having to build four walls and a roof, you just had to build one wall, uh, and then you'd basically live in the uh, the mound of a hill. So a uh, so a dugout, and there's a little sign that uh, says, "Which would you choose as you go to see this exhibit?" So I thought it'd be fun to see what the kids would what they'd pick. So first we go to the shanty, which again is just a it's a shed. That's that's all it is, and you. There's just enough room for a cabinet and a bed and a trunk and a table and chairs. In the middle, there's this cooking and heating uh, stove. And uh, you know, so we're, we're taking that in. It doesn't take too long. And uh, just ask the kids, what would you think of living? What would you think of living here? Would you pick the shanty? And they're like, I don't think, we'd, I don't think so. This is, this is small. I said, all right, well, let's go check out the dugout. I bet that'll be a lot better. So we walk over to the dugout, which is basically the exact same thing as the shanty in terms of size, except dirt floor, dirt walls, and uh, there's a sort of a covering, but it's a dirt ceiling too. And this kid's eyes just get big in there. You can't even stand to be in there because the it's just musty and uh, even just the smell in there. And so we got out of there pretty fast. I asked, "What? So what? What would you pick? Would you pick the?" dugout or the shanty? And Aaliyah, who's our oldest and thoughtful one, just has this disgusted look on her face. I guess the shanty. (laughs) And Luke said something along the lines of, can we please just live in our house in Aberdeen? (laughs) Now, just because something's newer does not mean it's better. That's a fallacy. It's too easy to believe these days. But, but there are instances when going back to the old way of doing things does not make any sense. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews wants to make this morning. Let's look at Hebrews 7, 11 through 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. And Father, we do draw near now through Christ, by the Spirit, to receive what you have spoken here as life, to receive transformation that is powerful, uh, that, that takes place only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for these words and uh, we ask that they would have their full effect upon us as we consider them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in July, we focused on this obscure Old Testament figure named Melchizedek in the first part of chapter 7. Although Melchizedek only appears in four verses of the Old Testament, that's all he, he's, he has four verses, uh, he is one of the most significant and greatest figures of the Old Testament. Uh, Melchizedek is a priest king. He is the king of Salem. Salem means peace, so he was the king of peace, so to speak. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And the text says he was also priest of God Most High in Genesis 14. And this Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And the reason that's so significant is because if you look up in verse 7 of Hebrews 7, the author writes, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek is greater, superior to Abraham. And connected with that in the logic of this, this, uh, this passage, Abraham uh, is, is, is naturally greater or superior than his descendants because he comes before. So Abraham would be greater than, for example, the Levites who descend from him. And if Abraham is greater than his descendants, the Levites, then the priest Melchizedek, who's greater than Abraham, is also greater than the Levitical priests as well. And so as we move forward in this passage, the author of Hebrews wants us to see the significance of Jesus' priesthood contrasted with that of the, the Levitical priesthood. Why does it even matter that we have a priest? We, have, we don't talk about priest, priestly functions that often, probably not as much as we, we ought to. What, what's the significance of a priest? What, what, what's, what does that have to do with it? And, and what changes uh, it with the priesthood of, of Christ? And, and does this have any effect on my life? Does this have any practical effect when I get up tomorrow morning. The, the, rest of the, the rest of chapter 7 of Hebrews is answering those questions. And so the next two sermons this morning and uh, whenever next time comes, we're going to be looking at the answers to those questions. And so we begin with the fact this morning that Jesus' priesthood is of a different order. The order of Melchizedek. And, and this priesthood is superior for a number of reasons, and we're going to look at just two 
this morning. The, the fact that Jesus' priesthood has a different qualification, and then the fact that Jesus' priesthood has a different outcome. And that's in your notes if you, uh, if you got those. So let's start this morning by looking at this new order, the new order of this priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse, look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it that our people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? We begin with this idea of perfection. Uh, perfection here comes with the idea of, of completion or, or fulfillment. Uh, and in one sense, the aim of the Levitical priesthood was to unite people with God. People have been separated from God, because of sin, going back to Genesis 3, and the purpose of the Levitical priesthood was to unite people with God once again. So you just remember the narrative. God rescues His people from Pharaoh and Egypt. He leads them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the law that we read about in the book of Exodus. And when He gives them the law, He also provides them instructions for the temple or the tabernacle to start with that He is going to dwell in. And so these Israelite people are going to have the blessing of being able to be in the presence of God. And the blessing of God's presence is only going to be possible through the Levitical priesthood. And so thus, after the book of Exodus, we're not surprised to find the book of Leviticus. And and if we were going to give the book of Leviticus a subtitle, the subtitle might be, How to Draw Near to God. That's what Leviticus is is instructing them. How to draw near to God. To God. And, and so what God does is He sets aside this whole tribe. One of the, one of the tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel. And this whole tribe is designated for tabernacle service, temple service. And then, and then even from within the Levites, they're divided into three different families. So you have the Gershonites, and you have the Kohathites, and then you have the Merarites. And then even from there, each of those has a different role to play in the tabernacle service. Even there, from within the Kohathites, one single family is singled out, Moses and Aaron. Moses, of course, sort of has his own special, unique role. And to Aaron is given and trusted the priesthood. So all priests are descendants of Aaron. And all descendants of Aaron are Levites, and thus we have the Levitical priesthood with all the Levites uh, fulfilling their, or, or, or playing their, their role in this, in this administration. And, and then as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, if you're familiar, what quickly becomes clear is the Levitical priesthood does not lead to God's presence. The Levitical priesthood does not unite people with God. It doesn't complete them. It, it doesn't lead to the fulfillment of God's promises. It doesn't lead to perfection. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is pointing out here. If, if the Levitical priesthood led us to fulfillment, or led the people to the fulfillment of God's promises, what need would there be for a priest named after someone other than Aaron? What need would there be for a Melchizedekian priest? Of course, the Levitical priesthood did, it did not fulfill its design, in a sense. The other thing to notice here in verses 11 and 12 is the connection between the law and the priesthood. The law and the priesthood are, are intricately linked. So we see in verse 11 that the people received the law under the Levitical priesthood. What he's getting at is that apart from the priesthood, the Israelites couldn't fulfill the law. It's not like you could have 
do the priesthood thing without doing the law, or do the law without the priesthood. They're, they're, they're tied together. The priesthood is built into the law that they received at, at Sinai. So in verse 12, he actually reinforces that point, right? You can't change the priesthood without changing the law because they're, they're intricately related. So if there's a change in the priesthood, verse 12, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see that there is a change in priesthood. A change for, a change for the better. Because Jesus is not part of the Levitical priesthood. He is of the priesthood of a different order. Look at verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe, from which no other tribe has served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Jesus is, is not from the tribe of priests. Levi, he, Jesus is from the tribe of of kings. Uh, we start connecting the tribe of Judah with the tribe of kings all the way back in Genesis 49 when, when Jacob blesses his uh, 12 sons before he dies. And so we read in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So according to one source, a scepter is a ceremonial or ornamental staff that was also a sign of authority or sovereignty. So a ruler or a king holds the scepter. It's a royal instrument. And so we're not surprised then 800 years later when King David comes on the scene that King David is the son of Jesse of the tribe of, of Judah. So, so, so what's the point? So the, Jesus' descent from Judah implies that he is not... Uh, his priesthood is not in accord with Jewish law. Look at the end of verse 14. And in connection with that tribe, Judah, Moses says nothing about priests. So can Jesus be a legitimate priest is the question. He can't be a legitimate Levite priest, but he's not claiming to be a Levitical priest. We have a change in priesthood. Jesus is a legitimate priest of a different Order. Jesus' priesthood much more closely resembles Melchizedek. Jesus is the priest king. So is he qualified to be a priest? Yes, he's yes, he's qualified. But that leads us to the first in a long list of reasons that Jesus' priesthood is much greater than Aaron's here in Hebrews 2. So secondly, this morning, let's look at the first reason this new priesthood is better. It has a different qualification. It has a different qualification. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of, in the likeness of Melchizedek. This becomes even more evident. What becomes more evident? What becomes more evident is that the old Levitical administration is passing away. What's becoming more evident is that a new administration has begun. Remember verse 12, when the law changes, the priesthood changes also. The two are inseparably linked together. So how do we know that the Levitical administration's passing away? We see another priest arising. The priest who's right, he's, he's not in the likeness of Levi. He's not in the likeness of Aaron. He's in the likeness of Melchizedek. And I just want to point out again that the language in the text here seems to distinguish Melchizedek and Jesus. I realize there's lots of people who see Melchizedek as sort of a, an appearing of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's understandable why uh, 
many people believe that, but, but the text here in verse 15 seems to distinguish them, right? Jesus arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Or up in verse 3, the author describes Melchizedek as resembling the Son of God. So it seems to be distinguishing these two. Jesus is, is in the likeness of Melchizedek. And that, he, that, that's at least in two different ways. Melchizedek ministers as a priest king, and Jesus is ministering as a priest king. Not to mention that Jesus is the ultimate king of peace and the ultimate king of righteousness. But secondly, Melchizedek seems to continue as a priest forever. At least that's how he appears in the narrative of Genesis 14. The the text never tells us when he dies or when his priesthood ends. He's this kind of mysterious figure. He appears and and disappears. That's why it's, 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 it's invited a lot of speculation about, about who he is. But so in the text, in the narrative of Genesis, he, 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 it appears as though he disappeared. He, he continues as a priest forever. And similarly, Jesus continues as a priest forever. But for Jesus, it's by virtue of his resurrection and ascension. His resurrection and ascension. This leads to Jesus' distinct qualification as priest. Why is Jesus' qualification as priest greater than Aaron's qualification or the Levitical qualification? I mean, not just anyone could be a Levitical priest. You, you had to be qualified to be a Levitical priest. And you're in your qualification, you just using the language here of verse 16, was it was a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. At least as it's translated in the ESV, your translation might read, it was, it was on the basis of a law of physical requirement. Or it might read, on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. Uh, it, it could just be translated, according to a law of a fleshly commandment. Uh, the Levitical priests were qualified based on a fleshly commandment. You had to be of the tribe of Judah, you had to be of the family of Kohath, and you had to be a descendant of Aaron. The problem with this, was that it did not guarantee you had good priests. As Tom Schreiner writes, no intrinsic virtue qualified one to be a Levitical priest. All one needed was the right family tree, the appropriate genealogical roots. Or as Richard D. Phillips puts it, a priest didn't have to have a sterling character or superlative accomplishments. It wasn't his education, his training, or his spiritual devotion, he got the job because the law said so. So you had priests all throughout the Old Testament. You had priests like Eli in 1 Samuel, who we don't know a ton about, but we get to know a little bit in the first part of 1 Samuel, who seems to be a decent priest. He might even be a good priest. In general, there's this favorable presentation of, of Eli. But then Eli has two sons, right? Hophni and Phinehas who are also priests. And here's how 1 Samuel 2.12 describes them. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Then listen to this. They did not know the Lord. That's a problem if you're a priest. That's a problem if you're the one who is the one who mediates God's blessings to other people. If you don't know the Lord. And in the Levitical priesthood, you had priests who didn't know God. But to qualify as a Levitical priest, according to law, it was, it was more external rather than something internal. Those were the qualifications. But Jesus' qualification as priest is even greater. Jesus arises as one, verse 16, 
who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. I don't think it's a coincidence here that the the author of Hebrews uses the word arises here in verse 15. This becomes evident, or this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, It's true that he does appear so to speak. He's is appearing here, and some translations just say appear, but, but the author uses the language of resurrection here. Jesus arises, and that's pointing to something important. Jesus is quali- he qualifies as this new kind of priest by virtue of his resurrection. Uh, it's not his pure bloodline that qualifies him as a priest. It's his pure heart that qualifies him as a priest, sin and death had no claim on Jesus because of who he was, which is why he rose from the dead, which is why it says he has an indestructible life. And then we see in verse 17 that this was promised long ago. Verse 17 cites the only other reference to Melchizedek in the Old Testament in Psalm 110 verse 4. So it says in verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just a couple of notes about this reference here in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. It's, 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 the, it's the first psalm about the, the or it's, sorry, it's first a psalm about uh, the triumph of, of the coming promised Davidic king over his enemies. That's what Psalm 110 is getting at, that David read earlier. Uh, it, the, the, the psalm is, is first or more of a king psalm than a priest psalm. It's more of a king psalm, and it begins with Yahweh, God Almighty, speaking to David's Lord, or David's master, or David's king. So in Psalm 110.1, we read, The Lord, all capital letters there, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Once again, this, this royal scepter Appears. And the psalm ends with the king drinking from the brook and lifting up his head in triumph over his, over his enemies. So David, David could relate to a king who triumphed over his enemies. David had experience with that, lots of experience with that, right? But then in the middle of Psalm 110, again written by David, he writes something that he could not relate with. In verse 4, the king is also described as a priest. Psalm 110.4 reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David, David knows a priest can't serve as king. And yet David would have known the deficiencies of the Levitical priesthood as well. David's practically uh, contemporary with Hophni and Phinehas, whose uh, service as priest is cut short by God. In Psalm 110.4, David is envisioning a time to come, one day, when one would come who could be both priest and king. Not resembling the Levitical priesthood, but resembling a Melchizedekian priesthood. And David prophesies that the coming of this king is absolutely sure. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. In other words, there is one to come with an indestructible life. So Jesus' new priesthood, it's, it's prefigured 
in this character Melchizedek, and then it's prophesied in Psalm 110. And this new priesthood, replacing the Levitical priesthood, has a different qualification, a greater qualification, which is an indestructible life, which points to who he is. And then in addition, it also has a different outcome. And to this we turn third and finally. This is a priesthood of a different outcome. And as we turn to verses 18 and 19, we see two things contrasted again. We see a former commandment uh, contrasted with a better hope. So let's look at the lesser before we look at the greater. All right, so if you look at verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So two things to note here. That first, a former commandment is, is, is set aside. What is this former commandment? Uh, in one sense, this, this is the whole law. Remember, the, the priesthood in the Old, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, the priesthood in the Old Testament law, they're intricately uh, connected. They're in, inseparable, right? Verse 12, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. And this phrase, former commandment, is just another way to get at what the author of Hebrews has really been talking about through the whole, the whole book. He, he refers to it as the law in verse 19. He refers to it as the legal requirement concerning bodily descent in 16. He refers to it as the Levitical priesthood in verse 11. If we go all, all the way back to Hebrews 1, uh, the Levitical priesthood, uh, the, this, this former commandment, is that which God spoke long ago. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, to our fathers by the prophets. So why is this former commandment? Why is the law being set aside? Was it bad? Is the Old Covenant bad? Is the Old Testament bad? Is the law bad? It's very important that we answer this question very clearly. No. No, it's not bad. God's word is not and never has been nor ever will be bad or deficient in any way. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And yet, the former commandment is being set aside. Why? Verse 18, because of its weakness and uselessness. Which begs the question, weak and useless for what? It's not inherently weak and useless. It's God's law. It's weak and useless and its ability to draw us into the presence of God. Not because it's designed for something else. No, it's, 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 it's weak and useless because of us. Our sin and rebellion against God is so deep. It has infected us so pervasively. We need more than just God's holy commands if we're ever going to be restored to God's presence. Generation after generation after generation had God's holy commands, and if that was enough, they would have, they would have achieved perfection. They would have achieved completion and fulfillment. But it never happened, not even once. To use the language of verse 19, for the law made nothing 
perfect. Rather than hope, it delivered condemnation. Rather than show what we need to do in order to enter God's presence, I mean, it did do that, it also had the effect of revealing our spiritual and moral deficiency. Sin has devastated the human heart. And even with God's commands, we choose sin. At the, at the end of the day, much like the Levitical priesthood, the law mainly addressed us externally, and it did not have the power to transform us internally. And if all you have is a wicked, selfish heart and God's law, all you'll have is condemnation. But, verse 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The priesthood has a different, the priesthood of Jesus has a different outcome. Hope. And this is not coffee cup hope. This is not hope for the sake of hope. Hope because we just like the word hope. This is a hope which serves, in the language of Hebrews 6.19, a hope which serves as an anchor for the soul. If you look just in the last chapter. God is God is good. Just, just as a reminder, going back to Hebrews 6.18, uh, God has never wanted His people to be swept away by sin. Uh, the sin and the storms of our lives. He has given us promises so that, verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's where the priest goes, right? The priest goes behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a hope anchored in the forgiveness of sins and the ability to draw near to God. It is, it is first internal and then external. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, Christ's priesthood allows all to draw near to God. In the, in the old administration, only a select few could do this. Moses was the first, and you'll remember Moses had to wear a veil after he would go and meet with God when, once he was back around the people. But in this new administration, all can draw near to God. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We, we have the hope of freedom in the new covenant. We, we are free, not, not to live our lives however we want. That's not the kind of freedom we're getting here. That's not the kind of hope this gives. This isn't freedom to live however we want. This isn't freedom to, to seek our joy and fulfillment in things that God says will ultimately bring death. We are free to draw near to God. We do so because our high priest grants us access to God the Father. We do so because our high priest sends the Spirit who frees us and empowers us to draw near to God. Uh, the the power and the joy of, of, and hope of the Christian life is not first outward. If you're wondering, what, what is the significance of Jesus' priesthood in my, 
everyday life? How does this affect the Christian life? How does it, what does this mean? Is there, is, isn't this all just theological data interesting? This isn't. This is the Christian life. If you don't understand this, your Christian life will self-destruct. It, it will, uh, if it doesn't self-destruct, it will, it, it will at least be confusing and you will stumble. The power and joy and hope of the Christian life is not first outward. It's not in going through religious motions. It's not carrying out the rituals. It's not attending the events. It's not being this moral Christian person because those things don't transform your heart. You can do them and you can still love your sin more than God. The power and joy and hope of the Christian life is first inward. We draw near to God in spirit and in truth. We draw near trusting, believing that He has died in our place. It's on the basis of His work on the cross. We draw near through our better high priest who helps us in our weakness and sends the Spirit to transform our hearts. This is so much more than the Levitical priests could do. So much more. But, but, but recognize the goal of this priest. Recognize his goal. He doesn't just merely give gifts. Jesus doesn't serve as a priest to make your earthly life better. Jesus doesn't serve as, an, as a priest to remind you how special you are. He doesn't serve as a priest to merely just provide you forgiveness so that you can just sort of move on with your life sort of free of you know, concern about judgment. Jesus serves as a priest in order to make you a different person. And that is blasphemy in the culture we live in today that says, you are okay. You are good. Look inside and find all the answers you need. Never question who you are. The high priest, Jesus, wants to transform who you are. You're not okay. This is, this is what's so offensive about this. At least two big things we're, we're going to stumble over in this. And that first is just that you, this reality, you're not okay. You are not in a good place. The, the, all of Hebrews 7 is, is, is assuming that you, in your sin, are reprehensible to the God who made you. In fact, God, who dwells in His pure, unapproachable light, is right to judge you in your sin. You aren't just oppressed by evil. You are evil. Your existence is a very threat to everything that is true and beautiful and good. You might think, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. That's too negative. That's too harsh. But everything we do is corrupted by sin. It's infiltrated everything. And it's not until we come to see the holy God of Scripture that we see the horror of our sin. And what's assumed here is that you are not okay. And that affects every area of your life. The other thing this assumes that it's easy to stumble over is that your greatest need is God. Hebrews 7 is assuming your greatest need is God. Your greatest need is not inner peace. Your greatest need is not your physical comfort. Your greatest need is not material. It's not a house. It's not a car. It's not a phone. It's not anything you can order on Amazon. 
Your greatest need is not intellectual. It's not knowledge and data. Your, your, your greatest need is not emotional. Your greatest need is not relational. It's not friends or family. Your greatest need is not a spouse. Your greatest need is not physical. It's not to get over your pain. It's not to get over your sickness. I'm not saying that it's, that isn't a need. That's not an issue. But it's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not to be a certain weight. It's not to have a certain body image. Your greatest need is to be near the God who made you. We, we are inherently religious people. You, you worship something. We all worship something. And so, and for practically all of us, it's we worship some things. You seek your greatest joy and satisfaction and refuge in something. But anything other than the true and living God is a false pagan God. What we worship, it, it often takes on religious characteristics. What you worship often has a law. It probably has things you must do and, it must, and often has things thou shalt not do. Uh, you, what you worship often reflects your calendar. It probably has its own holy days. It has its own feast days and fast days. If you want to know what you worship, what dictates your schedule. What you worship often has its own food laws. It has things you can eat and you can't eat. What you worship often has its own soundtrack. It, 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 uh, it has its own songs and musical praise that rejoice in its God. What you worship often affects how you look and how you act. We reflect what we worship. We look like, we sound like, we talk like, and we act like the false gods we worship. And what you worship often even has a priest. It often even has a person, a human being, a, a representative who you must go through in order to be accepted before your God. And sometimes these, these pagan gods, these are, the, even, these are, sometimes these things are, they're even, even good things. These things that we turn to for joy and refuge, sometimes they're even good things, but they're terrible gods. Pagan gods are always terrible gods. They leave us poor, they leave us empty, they leave us abused. They leave us frustrated and confused. They promise us life and they deliver death. There is only one God who delivers life and it's the God who gave you life. How can I come to Him? The answer is you can't. Why not? Because of sin. So is there any hope? Well, in any of the religious systems and priesthoods of this world, no. In the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, without heart transformation, inward transformation, no. But a priest has arisen in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek should always be a beautiful and wonderful name in our minds. What are this priest's qualifications? Is he from the right family? No. But he has what no other human being has, an indestructible life. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. He was crucified, an innocent man. He bore God's just wrath for our sin on the cross. He died a human death. 
and he rose a glorious resurrection. His life is indestructible by virtue of who he is. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us as our great high priest. So how can you come to God? There's only one way. Turn away from sin and put your hope in Christ. Seek Christ, your heavenly high priest. There is no joy apart from a priest. And in turn, He will transform your life by the Spirit. He will give you freedom. He will give you spiritual life. Does that mean everything in your life gets better? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it does mean that no matter what, no matter what, you will be able to do the most important thing you could ever do. The thing you can't do in your sin. Draw near to God. No matter what happens, you can always draw near to God. So is there hope? Yes. Yes, there's hope because you can draw near to the God who made you. I don't know if the situation in Afghanistan will improve. I don't know if COVID will go away. I don't know if your personal hardship will end soon. I don't know if your relational conflict will improve tomorrow. I don't know if your earthly dreams will come true. But I know that through Christ, by the Spirit, you can draw near to God. And in His presence, there is fullness of joy. So yes, there is hope. So what do you need to do? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to the end of your own righteousness and your own wisdom? The end of your own attempts to achieve peace and satisfaction and wholeness through your own ideas or from the false promises and priests and false gods of this world? Have you come to the end? Seek Christ. Do you need to come to the end of yourself once again? Martin Luther and the famous 95 Theses, the first 95 Theses reads, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Which means that we come to Christ, our High Priest, again and again and again, acknowledging and confessing our sin. And again and again, He forgives us on the basis of His blood shed for us. Again and again, He assures us of pardon and invites us to draw near to God the Father on the basis of His indestructible life. And again and again, He equips and empowers us to be the people God intends for us to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Christian life. Drawing near to God through Christ our High Priest. It would be crazy to choose a shanty or a dugout from 1880 over modern construction, plumbing, electricity, heating, cooling. No one would choose that over what we live in today. But it would be even more crazy, even more tragic to reject the greater qualification of Christ's priesthood, to reject the greater hope of drawing near to God in favor of the old external Levitical system or in favor of a false system of a worldly priest. So we conclude this morning with the words of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we are needy and you are rich. We are often empty and you are always full. We are sinful and you are righteous and holy. We are often selfish and you overflow with generosity. So Father, we come to you this morning through Christ by the Holy Spirit to receive from you what we can get nowhere else. We come to you for life. We come to you for joy. We come to you for hope. So that by your grace, we can exist for the thing that we're meant for, to glorify you. Father, help us cling to your promises. Help us to trust the forgiveness Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Help us fight for faith so that we can persevere to the end. And when our own weakness overwhelms us, help us remember our great high priest loves us so. And he will hold us fast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.